The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 74 of the Love in Action podcast, the show designed to help make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. You know, leading well is hard. I mean, if it were easy, more people would be doing it. And truth is, according to research, only 23% of people think their leaders lead well. 23%. And when the wrong people are put in the positions of leadership, make no mistake about it, it results in disengagement, turnover, anxiety, stress, and poor performance in your workers. So today's workforce seeks a new type of leader. And my guest today is here to tell us exactly who fits the mold and what makes today's leader stand out. Elad Hunkins joins us now. He is the author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. He's a faculty member of Duke Corporate Education, a TEDx speaker, a consultant, trainer, and coach. His work and writings have been featured in Fast Company, Inc., Forbes, Chief Learning Officer, and Business Insider, among others. Drawing on his two decades of experience training tens of thousands of leaders across 25 countries, he is here to tell us how to accelerate our leadership growth. Such an honor to have you here. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Marcel, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to meet with you and have our conversation. We've already had a great conversation even before we hit record. So I'm excited about this too. So let's start on a gratitude note, which is tradition here. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? I am grateful. You know, it's amazing. I, to be totally honest, I went through some heart issues a couple of years, like in the last year and a half, and I'm 52 years old. So frankly, being grateful for being healthy, I know it sounds like a really cheesy, simple one, but when you go through something and you stop, can't take it for granted that you're invincible. For me, I am super grateful for the health of me and for my loved ones and whatever Mm -hmm. state of that health is grateful for those connections. Yes, yes, yes. That is a blessing. I'm glad for that. So let's get you acquainted with our listeners. For people just being introduced to your life's work, what what would you say is your purpose? Or in the Simon Sinek fashion, what is your why? Yeah, so I have been lucky enough to kind of discover my why about 28 years ago. And I remember very vividly, I was actually at a personal professional development workshop where I had a chance to do a process around what is my personal mission. And this was 1994, so 26 years ago, November, frankly. So it's like I remember the, I remember the where I was. And what's amazing is this mission that I discovered or uncovered, I think, at the time hasn't changed at all for me. And so I feel so lucky. And so the mission for me, my why is I am here. My purpose is to create a vibrant and alive world by kindling the fire of brilliance in people. And that's what it's about. So there's a, mm. there's a vision to that. That's a vibrant, alive world. And the action is me, whether it's speaking, writing, training, coaching, consulting, or whether it's frankly raising my kids. It's about how do I make this world a better place by kindling the fire of brilliance in other people. 
And there's nothing that gets me more excited than having other people get excited about their own potential and what they can do in the world. Yeah. By the way, that's a great personal mission statement. I love it. So the book's title has quite a curiosity slant to it. I'm tempted to jump right in and ask the obvious question. Hey, what's the leadership code? How do we break it? And what are those three secrets? So let's build up the momentum here or build up the suspense. So I want to first kind of put you on the spot, if I may. Of course. (laughs) There are literally tens of thousands of leadership books out there. Why this book and why now? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There are thousands of books and a lot of them are good and a lot of them are, eh, okay. Because there's so many, I give you a wide variety to choose from. I agree. (laughs) So from my perspective, I have a pretty unique background, right? In that you have writers who write about leadership, but don't practice it with leaders. You have leaders like the Jack Welches of the world who kind of were in, like led a company and then they kind of do a personal memoir. Mm. Well, I've had this sort of in-between place where I have been in the trenches with multiple leaders and multiple organizations taking notes and not just with them, but working to train them. So I understand I'm an adult educator. And so I understand anyone who's ever been through a lousy training course knows that what makes a book effective isn't data, right? If everyone had just to have the data on something that wouldn't, that doesn't inspire action. So in a book format, what inspires is how do you take complex ideas make them simple? How do you bring them to life through stories? How do you also share the pitfalls? Because look, if leadership was easy, as you said, we'd all be great leaders, but we're not. So I also look at the pitfalls based on real world experience. And I put that all together, breaking it down finally into what are the behaviors? Because if we can't do something as a result of these ideas, then they're just nifty concepts. And so by being this adult educator, who's also a writer, who's also been in the trenches, I bring a very unique perspective. And somebody said to me, how long did it take you to write this book? Frankly, it's taken me my whole life, right? In some ways, because it really is in some ways the culmination of all the work that I've been doing, what I've been seeing out there, starting to take notes on specific stories. And those notes became blog posts. And those blog posts ended up becoming chapters of what is now cracking the leadership code. Mm, I love it. Okay, so you cite research in your book, which I, I actually mentioned in my intro that only 23% of us working people think that their leaders are doing the job well. How did we get to the point of having such low confidence in our leaders? Yeah, it's amazing. It's such a stunning, shocking statistic. And that comes from Ketchum Communications. Did a lot of research around this. And yet leadership is poor. And I think part of it is you read 23%. That's amazing. What's amazing is every time I get a group of leaders together, I, I might say, all right, so how many of you think you're mediocre? I mean, no one raises, no, no one intends to be mediocre. Right. And the thing is, when people like a survey company like Ketchum Communications asks people, they can answer honestly because it's anonymous, it's confidential. People don't feel comfortable speaking up and telling their leaders in person the truth because we have this power differential. And so bad leadership is able to perpetuate itself. And if you think about how humans, not just leaders, but how we learn anything, we copy the behaviors of people around us. In fact, I'll tell you a story that really Hmm. brought this to life in terms of how I figured out, how did we get into this pickle? How did we end up in this place? So I I, I know before we started on air, I told you I have two kids. Alex is 16. My daughter Miranda is 13. So about 10 years ago, they're six and three. And the two of these guys, they're, they're, in the, they're in the living room. And as little kids do, they're, they're goofing off and they're getting really loud. 
And Marcel, I have to confess, I got a little triggered. And I came into the living room. I said, would you two stop behaving like children? Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. Like, number one, that is a totally ridiculous thing to say. They were children. But the real reason I tell you this is because as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I was in shock because would you stop behaving like children was the exact same phrase that my mom had used with my brother and me when we were kids. And I didn't even realize I'd done it. So unconsciously, I'd copied the behavior of the previous generation. So why do we lead poorly in the way we do? We copy our previous generation of leaders and they copied their leaders and so on. So then I went and did the research. Well, where did this all start? It didn't just come out of nowhere. And if you do the research, what you find is the trail leads to one man. That's Frederick Winslow Taylor, who's considered the, birth, the father of the field of management. Now, you've got to realize this, his book, which is called Principles of Scientific Management, was released in 1911. So this is the heyday of the industrial age where 95% of the workforce were manual laborers on an assembly line. And the point of leadership was to basically get everyone to do exactly what you told them in exactly the same way. So there'd be one best way to you know, work an assembly line to be as efficient as possible. So at that time, leadership was basically shut up and do as I say. And it's amazing how much we still have, I call it your inherited leadership legacy, is that when people, because we all have internalized that power dynamic, we've been on the receiving end usually somewhere along the way. And so when we get into those roles of authority, suddenly without realizing we're like me and my mom, right? I'm suddenly regurgitating unconsciously this power differential because in the moment I can rely on that. And this is the challenge because at best, when you try to get people to follow your command as that command and control leader, at best, you will get compliance. But the thing is, we don't live in an industrial age. We're in this knowledge work age where everyone needs to be creative problem solvers, notice what they see on the front lines, share that information. And so if you're trying to do this command and control using 20th century practices in a 21st century age, you are destined to struggle as a leader, which is why 23% are only doing it well. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people just got an aha moment listening to this, like, this was a great discovery. Tell me again, Frederick's full name. Yeah, Frederick, people to reference. Frederick Winslow Taylor. And I read this biography of him. It's called The One Best Way. Yeah. And as you read through his life story and how he got, like, there were certainly jaw-dropping moments. I'll just give you one example. So he describes, and if you read this, your, your jaw will drop like mine did. He describes the ideal worker. And I'll quote this because I could not make this up. He says, the ideal worker should be, quote, so stupid and phlegmatic that he should more nearly resemble in his mental makeup the ox than any other type, end quote. So again, this idea of laborers as basically human farm animals just doing what they told. And again, that was 1911. We read this in 2020. It makes your head spin. But that's a totally, you know, if that's your approach, think about the impact that that's going to create in your leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often talk about changing mindsets that we have, we still have this, the mindset of the, that does cling on to relics of the industrial age. And this is what you're talking about. Okay. Let's uncover the three competencies of being a leader, which is really the framework of your book. Now, this is important to know because they are competencies. A lot of people are, are put into leadership roles because of some perceived charisma or confidence. And those are good things to have, but they are not competencies. 
which I believe is what leaders are lacking in most organizations. So, and here you are, you wrote a book on three competencies. So let's dive into these three companies that you, that you uncovered. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the subtitle of the book is The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders and Those Competencies. And I love the fact you talk about them as these are things you do, because to me, leadership is a skill Mm. that needs to be developed. Yeah, there are certain innate strengths that can lead you down that road. But unless you practice these competencies and these skills, you will not improve and become a better leader. And so the three secrets or the three competencies are connection, communication, and collaboration. So how did you arrive at those three? Why those three specifically? So what's interesting around how I arrived at those, it it wasn't something I sat down and went, hmm, let's think of three nifty words that start with C. You know, it wasn't like some kind of writer flourish. It was actually, I mentioned before that the work of the book came out of years of practice and little blog posts. So I started writing a blog in earnest in 2011. And I committed to a, basically, in the first, I got to say, the first couple of years, it was pretty lousy. And I was writing all over the place. And by about 2013, I found my voice. And I started committing to writing every single Saturday. I published an article every Saturday. And I didn't miss a Saturday for over four years. So I have 200 and some odd blog posts. I started going back and reviewing them and trying to bucket them into categories and themes. And what, I am, what emerged, and they were all about leaders, stories about leaders, what they did well, what they did poorly. And the three major themes that kept showing up and emerging were connection, communication, and collaboration. I went, aha. So I uncovered it in this organic way of looking at the work and what leaders were doing. And that's why I thought this is really important. I love it. Okay. So I want to drill down on each of those three competencies with you, starting with, now I'm biased here. So this is what I personally feel is the most important one, and that's connection. We'll get into that discussion after this short message. Don't go anywhere. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. Okay, we're back. So the first of the three competencies is connection. Let's unpack that. So what's the primary basis for connection? Yeah, well, I love the fact that you said that you think it's the most important. I have to say I'm biased too. Because, and the reason for this, let me give some context to connection because at its core, leadership isn't about control or power or a job title. At its core, leadership is a relationship between yeah. two people. 
And what creates a strong relationship? You've got to have connection. So the basis, and again, this is not just connection in theory. This is connection with another person, a human being, which means it doesn't matter what industry you're in, what function or expertise you have, you are in the human being business. If you are leading, you are in the human being business. I know that sounds really obvious, but it's important to keep a track of as we think about this conversation around connection. So you want to connect. What forms the basis of connection? And what I've found in my practice and research it is empathy. Mm. Empathy is the superpower of leaders to create connection. And I define empathy as showing people that you understand them. So there's a cognitive piece and that you care how they feel. So there's an affective or emotional component. So it's the head and the heart. It's both pieces. So you need to have empathy to start a real relationship. And you know, you may have heard the quote from Maya Angelou, which you know, she says, people won't remember what you did. They won't even remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I might've right. gotten that slightly off, but the essence is how do you make other people feel? Because that is going to be the trigger point as to whether or not they're engaged or not, and all of the different corollary benefits that come from that. Oh, you are preaching to the choir, brother. Okay, speak to the CEO here, or yeah. maybe uh, you know, on a strategy level, setting culture, changing culture. What are the business benefits of showing empathy to your employees and having, more, uh, having a culture of empathy? Sure, yeah, sure. Because otherwise, it could be like, oh, that's so soft and fuzzy. Why should I bother? I got a business to run. Right. Absolutely. So there is some business hard case to, to empathy. Number one, empathy builds trust. And anyone knows that there is a huge trust benefit. You might be familiar with the work of Stephen M. R. Covey, Stephen R. Covey's son, who wrote right. a book called The Speed of Trust. And I, I know the essence of it, you know, the big idea that comes out of that is when we have high trust, we get this high trust benefit because basically things move faster. You know, if people have trust, they're willing to speak up and share ideas, which means you get to innovation. So that's a huge piece. And then, you know, they did research that shows that high trust organizations outperform low trust organizations. And this is performance metrics of 286%. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. massive differential. So that's one piece. Trust, the other big piece around the benefits to empathy is you get insights. Again, this builds on the trust idea. But when people feel that you care about them, they think, hey, you know, this is an idea, Marcel. Have you thought about this? And suddenly you're getting all these great insights and ideas from other people, which leads to the third benefit, which is innovation. You know, if people see that what they're doing on the front line with the customer isn't working well, and you have this bond of relationship of empathy and connection, they're going to speak up and say, you know, our process, our customers are saying it's clunky or, or worse. And if they don't feel that way, they might just continue to go along like, hey, it's not my job. Like, I'm not going to speak up because they don't want to hear from me. And then suddenly those issues don't get resolved. And as we look at the world getting faster and flatter and technology enabling so much more, if we don't, as leaders, we don't have all the information. We never did, but we can't live in that myth anymore. And so this idea for us as leaders to build this kind of connection begins the process of moving away from being the commander-in-chief and being the facilitator-in-chief, yeah. right? to be able to move information from where it is to where it needs to be. I love it. Okay, so let's move to the, the second core competency, and that is communication. Let's talk about the obstacles first. What do we do wrong as leaders when we communicate? What are the obstacles to communicating well? 
Yeah. So one of the biggest obstacles and, and communication comes up time and time again, if you poll leaders, like what's the biggest challenges in your organization, usually in the top three, communication is one, two, or three. Yeah. Very, very consistently. I'm sure you found that in your work as well. So some of the biggest challenges and obstacles to communication starts with number one, we assume that it's working, especially it's, if it's coming from us, because like, look, I've got eyes that can see and read. I've got a mouth that can speak. I've got ears that can hear. I've got fingers that can type emails. Like I'm communicating. And we have to realize the first big trap with communication is that the goal of communication is not communication. Communication is just a vehicle. It's a means to an end. Uh, Which begs the question, what's the end? What are we trying to get to? The goal of communication is to create shared, accurate understanding. And understanding is seeing reality the way somebody else sees it. And the reason that shared understanding is so critical and why I'm so passionate about this is because understanding, whether it's good or lousy, misunderstanding or understanding, this is the platform on which we stand to take all future action. So if it's a solid platform based on shared, accurate understanding, we can make great decisions and get great results. But if that platform is tippy and unstable and falling apart, we're going to make poor decisions and end up with poor results. So mm. it starts with this. And so that's, that's why communication is so important. The other big challenge to this, and I'll use an analogy for this. Marcel, have you ever been to a carnival, like a state fair carnival? Sure. Yeah, most people have, right? So you know the midway where they have all the different games there? Yep. But you know the ring toss where you have to throw a ring around a bottle? I hate it because it always bounces off. Super hard. And that's just to get one ring. Well, to get 100% accurate understanding, to actually you have to, there's three rings that have to all end up around that one bottle. And those three rings are, what is it that I mean? So I mean something, right? I want to communicate something. The first thing is, what do I mean by what I'm trying to communicate? The second ring is, what do I actually say? So already we might be aligned or misaligned between what do I mean and what do I say? Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not. And then the third piece is, what do you hear? And I communicate to this to you, you're not me. So you don't live in my head. So for us to get accurate understanding what I mean, what I say, and what you hear all have to be in alignment. And oh my gosh, that is actually not very easy to do. So that is a huge challenge to communication. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get into some practical tips. What recommendations do you have to overcome these challenges you just mentioned? Great. So first is a mindset. First is the mindset to realize that actually the default human setting for communication is flawed. It's like, you know what? Misunderstanding happens. So wherever and whenever possible, you should put in checks to ensure that you are getting accurate understanding. And one of the ones I talk about in the book and I use with coaching and training I call it asking for a receipt. And I'll bring this to life with an example, totally not a corporate related example, but one it is business related. And this comes out of the fast food industry. So Marcel, I'm old enough to remember when fast food, this is in the 1980s, when they started putting drive-throughs into fast food restaurants. So this is the mid 1980s. And when they started this, the drive-through ordering process was a nightmare. What I mean by what I mean by that, and is that it was very, very typical. People would drive up to the intercom, they'd place their order, and then they'd show up to the window to pick up their food, and the order would be half of being wrong. Consistent, and this was across the industry, and this went on for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, drive-through mistake rates just started to plummet. And you might be wondering, what kind of technology, what was the big fix that changed it? It was super simple. What they started was the practice of having the employees repeat the order back to the customer before mm. they process the transaction. So let me make sure I got this, uh, sir. So you're ordering uh, three cheeseburgers, three fries, and three Cokes. Is that right? Yes. So if they got, then they knew they got it right. 
amazing, right? And if you think <laughs> about it, and so suddenly the mistake, and then of course it got better when they added the visual notification boards because you had the whole visual sensation. To be, all of which to say is, look, if Taco Bell will invest this kind of technology for a 99 cent taco, think about our businesses. Think about what we do. How many of us have meetings where we discuss these ideas and all the next steps, but we don't stop and take that extra five or 10 minutes to confirm exactly to make sure we're on the same page. And what ends up happening? Everyone's like, oh yeah, I got it. And of course, as leaders, we don't feel comfortable stopping and confirming because we're thinking, oh, these are adults. I have to, you know, they're going to think I'm babying them or everyone's smart. We've got it. Or, or we're too busy. We don't have time. Well, I'm sure you're familiar, Marcel, with the meeting after the meeting, right? It's like, oh, well, what do we commit to? Who's doing what? what? And so instead of taking five minutes up front, we end up wasting five hours or five days or $5 million in duplication of effort, rework, the wrong thing, whatever the cost is. So a simple tool is asking for a receipt. Simple thing you can do to ensure you're walking away with accurate understanding. I love it. Okay, so then brings us to the third competency, which is collaboration. You say something interesting. To create a highly motivated team, you say a leader has to operate as a, and I quote, motivational choice architect. Explain what that is and uh, how can we go about becoming (laughs) a motivational choice architect? I'm very curious. Yeah, exactly. Because you're thinking like, whoa, hold on a second. I didn't realize motivational choice architect was in my job description. What are you (laughs) talking about? So let me unpack that for sure. So if we think about traditional architects, right? If they're building buildings, you know, or they're designing buildings that other people build on, they design, but when their, their media is points, lines, structures, blueprints, right? About building physical buildings. Well, as leaders in organizations, we're not building physical buildings, but we are building environments. We're building cultures in which people can either thrive or flounder. So if we take that architect mindset and think about, okay, I want to be a motivational choice architect. I can't make anyone be motivated. Because again, if I want to make someone be motivated, I'm now back to command and control. Like, right. Motivate because I say so. Like, hold on a second. Who are you? You know, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> so all, all of which to say is instead what we can do, and I pulled this idea from the whole field of behavioral economics, which is this idea is that there are things that we can do to, and I'll use the word nudge. And there's a great book written by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunseed called Nudge. And Thaler won the Nobel Prize on this. So it comes by, and the idea is that we can nudge people in a certain direction with ways in which we set up the environment. So for example, in their work, they talk about if you want people to eat smaller portions of food, it helps to put the food on smaller plates because it appears to take up more of the plate and it triggers the visual signal of that's more food, even though it's exactly the same food in a bigger plate. Again, it makes, it's not rational, but it works. So we want to use the theories of behavioral economics to become these motivational choice architects. So let's translate out of plates of food and think, okay, I want to create an environment where people can perform at their best. What are the things I need to do? So what I found in both my practice and my research is that there are four fundamental human needs that people need to have satisfied in order for them to perform at their best. And these aren't necessarily in a particular order. They're all important at a certain level. But number one, I'll start with is safety. People need to feel safe. They have to feel physically safe, which, for example, right now in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, people can't physically be in the same office, which is why they're working from home. So there's physical safety. But beyond that, we also need to create psychological safety where people feel safe 
to show up, to be able to say things like, I didn't understand what you said, or I need help, or I made a mistake, right? Or it's just speaking up and sharing ideas. So there are things that we can do as leaders to promote physical and psychological safety. That's the first need. Next need is people have a need for energy. You know, a lot of environments are just dull, really just boring. And like, for example, I'm sure many of us have experienced the meeting, whether it's live or virtual, that goes on for two, two and a half hours, three. Like, we haven't taken a break and we are just sitting there going, like, my biology is saying, excuse me, I can't focus anymore. Could you just, you know, and we get irritated or angry or we tune out or whatever. So one thing, a simple tool that anyone can use is I call it using the 90 minute rule. Like biologically, we are not designed to focus on anything for more than 90 minutes at a time of real cognitive capacity. So build in breaks. I know it sounds counterintuitive to the industrial age, but we're not maximizing our efficiencies. No, you're not. But what you are is you're getting effectiveness because there's diminishing returns unless we do that. So we've got safety, we've got energy. The third big need is ownership. People have to feel like they have autonomy and freedom about how they do their work. So as leaders, how can you create very clear parameters and scope around the project, especially now during coronavirus where people are working from home? Can you think of your people as independent contractors in some ways to make sure you have a clear project and then give them the freedom to do it how they do? Because people bring more of themselves and they perform better and they're more engaged when they have that. So ownership is a big piece. And then the fourth piece is purpose. People perform better when they know that what they're doing matters, that they're doing something more than just a transaction or earning a paycheck. They want to know that this makes a huge difference. I'll give you an example that I've shared the story numerous times. So I was working with a medical device company out in the Midwest and I got a chance, I was working at corporate to do a training, but they said, hey, would you like to take a tour of the factory? It's right across the street before we get started. So I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And they do some work around helping people who have been dealing with cancer. And they have these really cool, amazing devices that basically can pump medication in intravenously, like, like through the body. I, I don't even know how, it's pretty complex. So I got to see someone working on the line, which is this amazing combination of high-end craftsmanship and high technology. And I was amazed. And the woman that was doing this was April. So I'm watching her work and she came off, she was taking a break. And I said, April, you know, I'm, I'm here on a tour. I'm working across the street at, at corporate, uh, across the street. I'm just curious, what exactly is it that you're doing there? And I'm expecting April to explain this to me with, you know, the technical, like, well, you know, I take this wire. And, I, and she said to me, why well, help save people's lives? What do you do? And I was just like, whoa. And then what I learned working with corporate is April's response was no accident because what this company does, you know, on this theme of purpose is every quarter they have a company-wide town hall and they invite the patients that have been helped by their products to come and speak to their employees about the difference that their product is making in their lives. So everyone knows that whatever your role in this organization is, whether you're April, whether you're an accountant, whether you're in IT, doesn't matter what your role, what you do is saving people's lives. What you do matters. And let's face it, when we know that what we do matters, we will work for drastically less pay. We will work longer hours. We will do so much more. So all of which to say is people have a need for purpose. So again, mm. the, to recap those four, safety, yeah. energy, ownership, and purpose are the four human needs if you want to become a motivational choice architect. And I just gave you a couple of examples of tools. The book is obviously filled with practical tips and tools you can do to enable those four needs to be met. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow, that was great. I want to ask you about something I feel is a huge obstacle in, and that gets in the way of us becoming great leaders and connecting with others and collaborating well, and that is managing people through fear. Fear is, you know, it's such an old tactic to get people to do what you want. And you know what? It actually works in the short term, but I just don't think it's sustainable in the long, in the long run. Why do you feel people in positions of power are still leave the fear when you just whole, wrote this whole book where you provide evidence that connection, collaboration, all the things that I would consider to be a caring environment actually leads to high performance and good business outcomes? Yeah, you know, there's a, that's a huge question. Great. My, my, quick, my quick answer to this is partially why people deal with fear. I want to say is that it's quicker and lazier. It's like you're lazy. You know, it's like it, it, it takes a lot more work to actually, it also takes a certain level of maturity to move beyond fear because fear is primal. Let's face it. Like you said, it works and it works in the short term. And frankly, if the building's on fire, I'm not going to worry about having consensus like, well, what exit do you think that we should leave from? No, let's just get the hell out of here because it's on fire. And that is a really appropriate response. But like you said, long term, it's an issue. And I think why leaders still resort to fear, and I'm going I'm to go big on this one. I think it has a lot to do with how we socialize ourselves and our children. The fact is, we are, you know, we've talked about the evolution of human rights. I mean, and I talked earlier about Frederick Winslow Tainer, Taylor and describing people like oxen. And now we make our head spin and we look how far we've come, whether it's been around civil rights, racial injustice. I mean, we have work to do on that. I mean, we've come somewhere, certainly since 1865, but we have ways to go. So, but you look at just the need for human rights. So we look at civil rights, we look at women's rights, we look at rights around sexual orientation, like realizing equal rights in so many different areas. And yet, if you're in the store, let's say you're at a big box retailer, and if you see somebody pushing along their four or five-year-old in a shopping cart and they scream at them, well, that's okay. Like, you know, like in terms of like, you just, you know, and like, because that's parent and we don't, we don't touch that because let's say, face it, parenting is off limits. We can't do this. That's why I'm saying I'm going out on a limb here. And look, I'm not, I'm not here to judge like you should be a better parent. Well, let's just look at the consequences. I know that because I experienced that as a kid. And what I noticed in my own parenting is how much I then internalized that power struggle, that differential because it's, when I stepped into the role of the powerful instead of the powerless, like I said earlier, I copied the behavior of the previous generation. And I think when we have those strong emotions in us that we have been raised on, fear is an easy go-to strategy because we know it, because it's been done to us so we can do it to others. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, especially the part about copy the behaviors of those before us. And I just see that playing out over and over generationally. We don't know what we don't know. And so yeah. we borrow from those people that we have worked for or with yeah. who end up at the highest levels of an organization because of things like, well, you know, they're, they're charismatic, but they also lead through the iron fist because they yeah. get results and they push people. And unfortunately, the business world operates that way. We expect results, but we're putting the wrong people into leadership roles where it's affecting the health, the well-being, and the livelihoods of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, uh, this has been a really stimulating discussion. And I, I knew it would be as soon as I read your book and knew about you and started to look, poke around and listen to your uh, TED Talk. Is there 
Any question that I didn't ask that I should have asked that is pertinent to our discussion? I mean, you asked such great questions. I mean, I think what's important, less of a question, it's more of kind of a build on what you just talked about, which is the sense of it's so easy to copy the previous generations. And like you said, we're, we're blind to our own blindness. It takes courage to step out of the old patterns, you know? And so anyone who's thinking, you know, I want to do this, you may not have as many models as you'd like, but they're out there. I mean, the good news is this world of kind of dog-eat-dog command and control, it's changing. You know, it's, if we look back, I mean, and the great thing is I love what I'm seeing with Gen Y and Gen Z in the workforce because they won't put up with this. They have access to tools. You know, today between LinkedIn and Glassdoor, people know where the grass is greener. And if you're talented, you'll leave, you'll go somewhere else. So I want to believe it's also, to me, it's, it's the right thing to do. And it takes courage. It takes courage to look in the mirror and go, you know what, I need to grow, I need to get better at this. And I think mm. the best leaders I know are on this lifelong journey of never-ending improvement because they realize this is a process of uncovering. Like we said, we're in the human being business and the first human being you need to learn about is yourself. Mm. If you can't lead yourself, it makes it a lot harder to lead other people. So that's just I, I wanted to add that piece there. I love it. Okay, so we end our episodes with two final questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? Oh, gosh. Great one. So I'm just looking at over this past year. So we've got coronavirus pandemic. We've got the George Floyd murder and all of the racial injustice going on. What I see is just comes back to people need to connect. So what's tugging at my heart is just listening, Mm. you know, and passing the microphone you know, letting someone else speak and just giving them the space and the time and, and having the empathy to understand them and care how they feel. I just, this back and forth, the vitriol, it's just, I want to listen to scientists, you know, if the scientists, like, why are we turning? So what's on my heart is just, it's the lack of listening. It, it, it pains me. And I wish we had some more listening going on in our dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And finally, you end the episode your way with one final takeaway, that one thing that you would like us to walk away with. Sure. So we've talked about so many good things here. You know, from my take and my experience, if there was only one thing that I could do to continue to accelerate my own leadership journey, I would reach out and seek feedback from other people. Like we talked about that humans are notoriously bad at judging ourselves. And the number one thing I think we can do is ask others, what am I doing well? And more importantly, what are some things I can be doing even better? And don't just ask your friends, ask the people who you know are going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly, because it's only through feedback that we can start to change. One of my mentors always tells me, you cannot change what you do not notice. And you know, we are, we are not so good at noticing things ourselves. So getting feedback from others is a great way to start. Mm. I had a blast talking to you. I appreciate your time. And if people want to connect with you, where can they go? And also tell us about that 30-day leadership challenge. Sure, yeah. So if you want to connect with me, easiest place to start was probably the book website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. You can learn all about the book there. You can actually download the first chapter to preview the book. That page is actually linked right to my alainhunkins.com website, which is A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And I mentioned to you, yeah, so what I'm doing, I'm really excited about this, but on October 4th, sorry, October 5th, I am launching my first 
30-day online leadership challenge, what we're doing is we are taking all the key ideas from the book and we are going to be going online over 30 days with a, a community where we're going to be using the best principles of habit formation, positive psychology, and gamification, where in just a few minutes a day, you can be a part of this group to support and reinforce these lessons around connection, communication, and collaboration. I'm really excited. All the information is on the website. You can find it. Just go. There's a 30-day challenge tab. And as I mentioned to you, Marcel, before we started, what I'd like to do is gift to your listeners. So the usual price is $199 per person is to gift two complimentary spots to two of your podcast listeners. So if they want to reach out and just let me know that if you email me at Alain, A-L-A-I-N, at AlainHunkins.com, if you're interested, just put down that you're part of the Love in Action podcast audience. And if we have numerous people, I'll do a, a drawing and then I'll let people know that they either are in or not in terms of getting those free spots. But I wanted to make that available because I know that leadership is a journey that is best traveled with support. So that's Fantastic. what the big intention of this is about. This has been real. It's been fun. We got to do it again sometime. Oh, I'd love that. Marcel, <laughs> you're, you're, like you said, we're speaking my language. So I just really enjoy this. I'm happy to share. And, and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to make this world a, a more effective and more loving place. Mm, likewise. My special thanks to Ella Hunkins for joining us. And thank you for listening and spreading the love and action movement. We would be grateful if you could share this episode with others. You can visit my website at marcelschwantes.com for previous episodes with the world's top thought leaders as we explore the competitive advantage that is love in action. And finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, I'd love to chat with you. Reach me on my website or hit me up on LinkedIn or email me personally at marcelschwantes at gmail.com. Next week, I sit down with Dr. Stephen Treziak to talk about his new book, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. This show has been produced by One Stone Creative. Until next time, don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.